Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Archbishop Salvatore Cordaglione. He is the Archbishop of San Francisco since 2012. Before that, he was Bishop of Oakland and Auxiliary Bishop of San Diego. Uh, He has been a leading voice in recent months in maintaining the church during the COVID crisis. He joins us today to detail some of the difficulties, uh, the stories of the church uh, during during this time, dealing with uh, local situations and with his own parishioners. Welcome, Your Excellency. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, why don't we go back uh, to the beginning, to the first appearance of the of the pandemic in the Bay Area, and was it how how soon did you see it begin to disrupt church? services. What what happened there? Well, I saw it disrupt ch- church services immediately. Uh, it's uh, the concern started when uh, we were being treated um, unequally compared to others. So back uh, going back now, this seems like ancient history, but uh, mid-March is when these shelter-in-place orders were uh, taking effect. And we bishops, all the bishops of California and around the country, really, um, we closed our church to masses and uh, live-streamed instead. Uh, as people will remember, there was this great panic. There was a lot of uncertainty. There's a great fear of, of overwhelming the uh, healthcare system and of massive deaths, right? So all this uncertainty and all this fear. So we wanted to position ourselves, of, as I've always tried to do, as being cooperators with our, our government leaders to try to uh, protect our people and get this under control. So I said from the start that we bishops were voluntarily making the decision to do this in order to cooperate, that the government doesn't have authority to tell us whether or not we can have a a worship service or whether or not our churches can be open. I did ask my priests to keep their churches open for people uh, to enter for private prayer and also to provide uh, the sacrament of penance in in a, a safe and confidential way. So we went, we went this way for several weeks, for a couple of months, uh, but then things started loosening up in May, and uh, th- this is where the concern started. First, I was told, we were told in the middle of May that here in San Francisco, we uh, had gotten, the, they call it the reproductive rate, how, ma- how many people someone will infect if they have the virus, that it had to stay under one in order to begin opening up safely. It had been holding at 096 
And in the middle of May, they said, if we can do this for two more weeks, then we'll be able to begin to open up and we can resume masses in our churches. So the next two weeks are going to be the critical uh, period. I was very hopeful because May 31st, this was the middle of May, May 31st was Pentecost Sunday, so it would have been just in time for Pentecost Sunday. So we kept the we kept it, it held steady right at 0.96. But then when we got to the end of the month, I was told, or it was announced that uh, we can't open up yet. We need more time to be sure. And uh, the conversation I had with officials was that uh, I asked for an explanation. And all I was told is that, uh, well, they learn things as they go along and we don't want to overwhelm the hospital system. And I said, well, what new have they learned? And, and he said, well, in two weeks, we'll be able to resume in two more weeks. And I said, well, how can we be sure if they said that before and it didn't happen? I was given assurance that it would happen. So at the beginning, this is the end of May, early of June. So mid-June, it's going to open up. So they did issue a health order that uh, was allowing for worship services, but the restriction was only outdoors with the maximum of 12 people. In effect, the same thing as not allowing worship services, really. Uh, in the meantime, so that, again, the unequal treatment. In the meantime, the city, as all around the country, they were allowing the street protests to go on without any limit on the number, without consistent social distancing. Here, the city officials actually participated in some of these protests. And so, but yet we were not allowed to have uh, no limit on an outdoor religious service, even though it's safer than a protest because the people are stationary. They, we can make sure they stay six feet apart and wear masks and follow all the other safety protocols. The city had asked us, had asked the faith communities at, um, in May to submit a safety plan for when we do open up for worship, what our plan will be to keep the people safe. So, you know, we did and others did as well. In the meantime, stores had did the same thing and they got their safety plans approved and went into operation, whereas we never heard back on ours. Although... Uh, the, our health officer here did speak approvingly of our plan, that he does like the plan, but we never got an official approval, as did the stores, which were allowed to operate with 50% capacity for indoor retail. Again, I asked the question, well, then why not allow uh, a church service? And I understand the principle that when people are indoors for an extended period of time, the virus circulates, there's a greater uh, chance of infection. And the idea that people go into a store, make a purchase and leave. But that doesn't happen all the time. You know, and these larger outdoor retails, retailers, it's easy for someone to stay in there an hour or more shopping. And the employees, whether large or small store, the employees are inside all day long. Whereas in our churches, it, it can be a safer space than a store because, again, the people are stationary and we can ensure they're six feet apart and wear masks. We can keep the windows and doors open for airflow. And uh, we can sanitize high-touch areas between services. Unlike a store, you just can't do that by the practicalities. You know, people are moving around a lot. They can be bumping into each other, and they're touching everything. And the only response I got is that it's much, much safer to do it outdoors. Did they, did they raise the issue explicitly about communion? No, no. They, they never raised the specific issue about communion. Other than, other than they gave a list of recommendations for religious services at one point. And this was 
it wasn't a mandate. Um, so in all fairness, so there were recommendations for faith communities to consider, and there were suggestions for communion. They were trying to cover all different faith backgrounds. So they were uh, giving these suggestions for how to do communion. But that's, that, that was the only instance of that. Uh, you, you will pardon me, Your Excellency, if I do not um, take instructions on, on how to conduct services from city officials in, the, in, in San Francisco. <laughs> but one thing, uh, if we go back a little bit, you, you serve on several committees of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. You're on several boards as well. When these, when these mandates came down from, from the city, was the response, uh, was, was it a joint response? Did, did, did the bishops, did, did, did church leaders consult with one another, or were dioceses pretty much sort of independently responding to local conditions? Here in California, we have 12 dioceses, so we're kind of a large state in terms of, in that sense. And uh, we, we were speaking regularly, speaking every week together on Zoom calls to coordinate our efforts. But in California, a lot is deferred to the county. So the state issues some guidelines and then the counties implement them. They can is- implement stricter guidelines than the state allow. And the state is all- already overly restrictive. So it, it varies county by county, but we were trying to coordinate our efforts. So in California, we did. The USCCB did send out some guidelines and recommendations to all of the bishops, but this happened, you know, in, in March and the, the bishops, the USCCB meets twice a year in June and November. So it wasn't around the time of a meeting. And then we had to cancel the June meeting anyway. So I think this is typically what happened around the country is bishops in, in a state or in a region would uh, be in communication to coordinate their efforts. You know, you had a memo to priests issued at the end of July in which you said that you worried about the long-term effects on people's spiritual health. That was the end of July. Did you see much earlier than that? Did you, did you worry about the, 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 the loss of in-person mass, services, communion, uh, how this would affect the, the faith of San Francisco parishioners in, in some long-term way? Yes, I did. Uh, earlier than that, I was beginning to worry about that. In fact, uh, the homily I gave in May, I don't know, it may have even been on Pentecost about, uh, I spoke about how it's not, for us, it's not the real thing to uh, follow a service by live stream. Maybe in other religious traditions, they can do that. But being a sacramental church, uh, we we can't do that because physical reality mediates the the spiritual reality. And it's interesting. The Orthodox churches here in San Francisco are are um, thinking the same thing. They're they're very anxious to get back to worship, and they're very upset about the unfair treatment, right? Because we're sacramental churches. We need we need the physical presence and the, the physical reality. So I was worried about that uh, very early on. Yes. You, you noted also in your memo that there was little unity. Uh, in in the church on on responses on on how to deal with the the civil authorities uh, what were the different opinions and ideas that you that you hear and maybe still do hear uh, is there is there active debate going on with how how the church is to respond I was not thinking so much of debate as what I'm hearing from people uh, so on on the one side people who are very afraid and think we need to be very strict about keeping the mass safe and, and not going back 
to indoor masses in the churches, and they're very worried and scared. Others who are agitating for civil disobedience, this is an unjust treatment of the church, infringement of the First Amendment, and we need to move to civil disobedience and just open up our churches and have mass. So those were kind of like the two extremes. So that's what was going on in my mind. I was hearing so many conflicting complaints from people who were writing me. I'm hearing less now about people who are on the fearful and stay strictly locked down side of the spectrum. What I'm hearing more and more is people becoming impatient and feeling outraged. And I'm hearing this even from people that normally aren't very kind of belligerent or, you know, want to fight back kind of attitude sort of people, but they're becoming very impatient and want us to do something very uh, serious and, and to agitate for some change. You know, uh, Your Excellency, it's wearing people down, especially as, as school's starting again and the kids are home. Uh, do you hear them talking about their own children and how their, their kids need to get out for the spiritual devotion? We've got to get them out of their rooms. We've got to get them away from their screens. Is this one part, of the, uh, part of the increasing uh, impatience, exasperation with the lockdowns? Yes, uh, I, I can't say parents have talked to me directly about that, but I hear in my conversations with uh, pastors and people throughout the archdiocese, people are talking about that and the need for children to be interacting with each other. Because um, so this is another thing that worries me. Uh, what effect is this going to have on their social development if they've had to be, um, you know, isolated for so long at that? young age where it makes such a great impression. So that does worry me about their social development. My son is in a Catholic school. We're in Northern Virginia uh, now near, near Washington, D.C. And their policy at Bishop Ireton is two days. They divided the school in half. Half the kids are in for two days. Then they're online for two days, in for two days, online for two days. That That's working out pretty well. Um, just Just getting the even the two days presence gives gives something there. What is the situation with your schools right now? Right now, schools are uh, giving instruction uh, remotely, but schools can apply for a waiver to have in-person instruction. And uh, again, the county determines whether or not they can do that. And then they would give the initial approval and that that, that is sent to the state for approval. So some schools have already done that. It looks like there's a possibility that by the end of the month, uh, they will allow schools to open up without having to request these waivers. So it's hopeful. Right now, it's hopeful for schools to go back to in-person instruction, at least in a mitigated sort of a way. So it's just the plan that you mentioned, which I think would, if you can't do the regular, you know, five-day instruction, that to me would make sense. At least they have some time when they're together with other kids and with their teacher. Right, right. Now, you note the, the divided responses, the instantaneous respect of civil authorities uh, for the protests. As you've interacted with, with the city officials, do they seem to have any understanding of the importance of actual presence as, a, as part of the faith? Do, 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 they, do they see spiritual health register clearly as something quite distinct and important? That's a good question. They say that they do, but I don't see it put into action because uh, I've explained this to our city officials, the need to attend to not only physical health, 
and economic health, but mental and spiritual health. So we know we know this increase in depression, a spike in suicides, uh, domestic violence, uh, people uh, overdosing on drugs. Uh, someone on our seminary staff had a nephew who died on the street, overdosed from drugs because he got disconnected. He and his family got disconnected from their faith community. Yet he was ended up isolating himself. So I explained that, and I explained the people's need for um, to be connected with their faith and their faith community, especially uh, poorer people. And um, we have a lot of Hispanics here in San Francisco, and they're very community-oriented. So this is, this is very important to them. And these are people who have essential jobs, so they're kind of more in a more vulnerable situation. So they need that consolation. So I hear, yes, that they understand, but then they don't do anything about it. So it's become clear to me that they just don't care. They don't care about our, our, our faith communities um, because they're not, they're not doing it. In fact, they uh, continue to single us out for separate treatment. So the city just, on, um, just recently issued new, a new health order uh, that still doesn't allow in-church services other than it has allowed all along to be in church to live stream a service and to allow the people there necessary to uh, serve, serve it and to live stream it up to 12. But you can't have a regular service indoors that you're not live streaming at all. And now there's the limit was 12 for outdoors. Now it's 50. But again, I say, why 50? So San Mateo County, for example, is the, the county south of San Francisco. We, we share at the county line. So why on one block north of the county line, you're limited to 12 and now to 50. One block south of the county line, you could have an unlimited number of people at an outdoor gathering. So how does the virus know the difference? Are people crossing the county line to get over to those churches where they can attend? That was happening when uh, San Mateo County was the last county in the Bay Area to go on what the state used to call a, a watch list. Now they have a different tiered system of evaluating. But uh, before they went on this watch list, they were allowed to have indoor services with a cap of 100 people. That's the cap the state puts on. That's also unrealistic. Absolute numbers are unrealistic. There are so many other factors you have to take into consideration. But at least they were able to do that. And so there were people from San Francisco going down to San Mateo County for indoor services. Now that we're opening up with 50, I'm not sure to what, and San Mateo also cannot have indoor services. So I don't think that's happening uh, so much anymore. But then, then the other difference is why, you know, they, we can have 12 in church to live stream a service, but if it's not live streaming, then you can't have the service at all. <laughs> okay. And now the, and the, the other, the other factor in this health order is that, uh, they allow one person in church at a time to pray. I mean, th th this is a mockery, especially when, especially when they're allowing indoor one, indoor services that require extended one-on-one -on -one contact, such as barber shops and hair salons, and nail salons, and ma massage parlors. They're allowed to op operate indoors, but yet only one person at a time in church to pray. This is why I see they don't they don't really care about our faith community, and it's. And they're, they're overstepping the bounds of their authority. The government has no authority to tell the church if it can operate or not. So this is, uh, this, is, this is very, very serious. I don't know if people realize how serious this is. So I've been at people, people are urging me to take more, more decisive action, and I've been kind of gradually ramping it up. 
And we're going to do that uh, this Sunday. We're going to have, since the city allows demonstrations um, without a limit, but not religious services, we're going to have a demonstration of our faith that will take the form of a procession, well, three processions uh, that will meet in front of City Hall and process to our cathedral for our um, multiple masses, as we've been doing, except now we can have 50 at each one. So I have a very large gathering, but in separate groups of 50, each one with their own mass, uh, showing uh, the great cultural diversity of our archdiocese as well. And I'll be able to preach the homily to everyone gathered there. Well, wait till all the masses finish the gospel so I can preach the homily to them all. We also have a petition drive that I would encourage people to go online and sign the petition to urge our city to open up for mass under the, the slogan that we are essential, free the mass. So they could go to freethemass.com and uh, sign the petition. It, it's getting a lot of traction. Our, our public officials need to know that faith matters, that uh, people want to be respected. They want the First Amendment right to be respected to be able to worship. It seems to me that even as a utilitarian argument that given that you know the more people are involved in churches the lower you see forms of dysfunction and fewer social problems as you mentioned uh before the the emotional issues and that people people are suffering that church service relieves these things so that again as a simply a pragmatic choice the city officials should want to get people into church services every week you're going to have you're going to find fewer fewer suicides you will find uh a few fewer you know lower lower domestic problems and and so on no sense that church is good for people it it lower put it this way it lowers the costs to the city no our founding fathers of this country certainly understood that they understood and it was kind of that pragmatic approach right they understood the importance of religion in public life because religion helps to instill a sense of virtue. And they understood a democracy can't work without a virtuous citizenry. That's why religion, without adopting any one official religion as the religion of the state, but still that that virtue of religion was important to preserve in public life. And you're absolutely right. It, it, helps, it helps solve so many social, or at least mitigate so many social ills of homelessness and and uh, violence and uh, school dropout, all the, all these problems that can be traced to the breakup of the family and especially to fatherless families. And uh, all you need to do is come to San Francisco and look around and see what the consequences are when we, when we give that up and reject it. Um, we have a huge homeless problem here. There are tent cities all over the place. Uh, drugs are trafficked and, and bought in the open air. Uh, they're shooting up on the street. You know, we're kind of infamous for human feces on the street. Uh, it's it's really dire. And it, I think suppressing religion is not a way to fix this problem. So I don't know if they understand it or not. Uh, I'm, I'm fearful of the control that the government has taken of the church. And uh, in some parts of the country, they're not going to let go of that very easily. And so that's what worries me. And it's going to be to everyone's detriment. It's not just a matter of a few people want to go to church. Because like you said, that uh, religious belief uh, does so much to instill that sense of virtue to help, help solve some of these problems. 
that uh, without that, it's, it's going to be dire consequences. You know, you know at the end of uh, one of your statements, you urge the importance of fasting at, uh, at these times. Why did, you, why did you turn to that? We've gotten away from a sense of penance. Uh, penance has always been a part of our, our Catholic and even broader Christian tradition, especially in our Catholic tradition. And we've just gotten away from that. And penance, uh, fasting is an important form of penance because it's something you can really feel in your body. Uh, this is a time when we need to corporately do penance and ask God for mercy and ask his forgiveness for our sins of negligence for letting our society get this way. So it's, it's a serious way of doing penance, and I believe it will please God if we do that, this form of bodily penance, to beg him for mercy. Uh, more recently, uh, Your Excellency, you sent an open letter to the San Francisco mayor, London Breed, and to city public health officials asking them to, quote, ease unfair restrictions. Uh, was there, I mean, you, you've talked a little bit about, about the response. Specifically, did they, did they come back with anything satisfying for you? No, I received no direct response. The only thing was this new health order that allows uh, for groups of 50 outdoors rather than 12, but it also has a provision that it doesn't allow multiple gatherings at the same time. <laughs> so it's clearly targeting us. And then it had this other provision of only one person at a time inside of church. So it's, they, this is where they keep, <laughs> this is their pattern. They say that they promise to do something, then they do something that's kind of a token gesture, but they can continue to clamp down on us. Yeah. Uh, is there, a couple of years ago, uh, I remember uh, reading about this out here in the East, you had some tensions with the city uh, over Catholic doctrine, I think you simply announced Catholic doctrine on sexuality and and marriage and, and so forth, that angered uh, people locally. Is is there any lingering hostility over that? Do you do you sense, or is this more of a generalized? Uh, the Catholic Church is not us. That's a good question. I don't I don't know for sure. I don't know. It may be fueling it. Uh, for some. Yeah. You, you cite public health specialists affirming that, quote, no outbreaks have been linked to church attendance. We have no evidence. And, and this is public health officials saying, we have no evidence of this. It seems to me that that scientific opinion should be, should be broadcast loudly and widely. I'm trying to do that. These are three specialists in infectious diseases. They studied uh, masses celebrated over a 14-week period, over a million masses, and not one infection was traced to a, where they observed the safety protocol. So we're, we don't want to be reckless here. We want to be responsible. And I issued the safety protocol that everyone else throughout the country did based on that study that came out of the Thomistic Institute in Washington, D.C. So they're very thorough. They're very sick. Like I said, our own health officer speaks approvingly of them. So it's not that we want to be reckless. We want to observe sound safety practices. And when we do that, there, there are no infections traced to all of those church services. People say you're going to endanger people being infected. Well, you know, people continue to get infected, right? So they're getting the virus from somewhere, right? They're not getting infected by staying at home alone. So they're going places and they're getting the virus. So it's going to, if we have any kind of operation going on of, of anything, there's a chance, if you go into a store, there's a chance you get the virus. 
if you're outdoor dining, there's a chance you get the divide. But we can uh, mitigate it and quite a bit if we observe sound safety practices. So no matter where you go, there's that chance. I would imagine that uh, whereas you know people mingling in a, in a grocery store or, or at the mall, they're all operating individually, doing their own things. People in, in mass are very guided. They're, they're, they're in kind of a controlled situation. It seems to me that, again, with, with you're able to ask people to observe the, the safety measures much more effectively than they have to do so in the mall. Yes, that's the point I was making earlier. It is a more controlled environment. And we can have ushers there or monitors to ensure people observe the safety practices. It's controlled, it, the people are stationary. And let's face it, people at a church service, those kind of people are much more inclined to be obedient and follow directions than people who are wandering around in a mall or, or protesting or, or other, other such things. So it's, it's just this double standard that we're being subject to. And people are seeing the unfairness of it all. Are you getting any legal support from outside the church uh, over this violation of First Amendment rights? I've spoken with experts in the field, um, but uh, I don't have it needed legal support in terms of dealing with with the law so far. <laughs> I hope I won't, but if I do, I'm sure I'll have people coming to my aid for that because I, I have been in discussions on, on the legal side. I've had a lot of discussions with people with different areas of expertise in the law, healthcare experts and epidemiologists to try to understand better, better the science behind it and community leaders here. So I've been in I've had a lot of conversations over the last several months to understand the different angles of the problem. I, I, w- I would like to see a city official on the stand explain why the city came up with the number 12. Why not 13? Why not 11? Well, how, how did you settle on the number 12? That, that, would, that would make for some interesting scientific testimony, I think. Well, I've asked questions and they don't answer them. Yes, yes, yes. Now, you, you know, there was a story I, I, I was doing some background here in the San Francisco Chronicle on July 1st, stating that the city attorney directly threatened the archdiocese with punishment if the churches don't stop the, quote, indoor gatherings. Are, are, are they still taking that kind of hard, threatening line? Uh, they did for a while, but for the last few weeks, they haven't heard anything. Uh, there, apparently, there were the people um, sort of spying on our churches. They were going around and looking at churches and trying to find infractions of the health order and reporting it to the city attorney. And um, then, so they got these reports. The city attorney sent me that that letter, cease and desist letter, threatening a temporary restraining order. Uh, then somehow, somehow the media got a hold of it very soon. I mean, within within an hour of our response to the city attorney, we had a request from a reporter for information, asking questions about this letter. So things get the media finds things out, and um, then they write write up these stories. Uh, so that went on for a couple of weeks, um, and uh, some some reports were inaccurate, uh, some reports were exaggerated. Um, it wasn't like they were all inaccurate; there were accuracies in there as well. But there was also a lot of confusion uh, about because things were changing so much, uh, and. So I think a lot of priests were confused about what the rules really were. For example, the health order uh, up until about a week ago was you can have 12 inside to live stream 
uh, a 12 outside service. So that it's easy that a, um, a, a priest or a minister would be confused and think that you can have 12 inside for a, a service. Well, you can if you're live streaming and everyone in there has some role in serving it. <laughs> you know, so so the, the 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 rules were confusing and they were changing all the time. Uh, so uh, that's why there there were infractions. I'll admit there were infractions. But so I I so I sent my memo to the priests asking them to conform to to the health order. The Junipero Serra statue in Golden Gate Park was toppled in June. You followed up that by leading an exorcism prayer at the at the toppled statue. Uh, I I bet that that was. I bet that that was an inspiring moment for, for your parishioners, given the city seemed to well, do nothing uh, about this. I was very comforted by the large turnout of people for that. Um, I can tell you, when I saw the scene of the statue being toppled, I got, it was like a gut punch. I, I felt a wound, and uh, I've, I've been close to Nipro Sarah because I grew up three miles away from the first mission that he started in San Diego. So it's was very much a part of my upbringing. And uh, to see that happen, I, I sense very much a presence of evil, people rejoicing at desecrating the, the image of such a great saint. Uh, so I just, I had to do that because I, I knew evil was present there. Archbishop Cordiglione, thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.